All right, if you have your Bible with you today or one nearby you, I'd like you to look, if you would, at the book of Luke and chapter 1. Book of Luke and chapter 1. Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We've got another reading and some music in just a moment, but I wanted to bring these thoughts to you from the Scripture. Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. From the very moment that God created the world, Satan has been an enemy of God in all his plans. Uh, The book of Job indicates that the angelic hosts of heaven were, were shouting for joy as they were watching God create what we know as the universe. So the creation of the angels apparently predates the creation of the world in which we live. And many Bible students believe that it was the creation of the world in part that enticed Lucifer to be filled with envy and pride as he observed the beauty and creative genius of Almighty God and became jealous of God's sovereign rule over his creation. Most of you know that story. Satan rose up in rebellion against God and then deceived into rebelling with him what many Bible students believe was one-third of the angels. They were all cast out of heaven, and from that day to this, Satan and his demons, the fallen angels, are the enemies of God and all that God does. So it should be no surprise to we who know the Lord that Satan, knowing God's plan of salvation, and knowing that he is not a part of that plan, has done everything possible to thwart God's plans, to destroy God's people, to deceive people with false doctrines, to question everything that God has said or done, and to sow seeds of doubt in the minds of every human being that he can possibly corrupt. Right in the middle of his attack on the truth of God, right at the center of Satan's deception and corruption, is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. What theologians would call the person and work of Christ, who Jesus was, who Jesus is, what he actually did, what he accomplished through his earthly life and his death on the cross. Uh, This is the heart of what we call the gospel. That That is the basis of Satan's attacks on the gospel. People use the word gospel in many ways these days, but the Bible use of the word gospel is the story of the person and work of Christ, starting in the book of Genesis, going all the way to the end of Revelation. The center of the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians 15. But the crucifixion of a man who lived 2,000 years ago it is, mean, is meaningless unless that man was unique in the history of the world. And Jesus Christ was unique. He was a one-of-a-kind, no one ever like him before or since. Now this is the season of the year when we celebrate the coming to earth of that unique, one-of-a-kind person who came to save us, to redeem us from our sin, to forgive us and restore us to a right relationship with our Creator. So again, it is no wonder that Satan sows seeds of doubt in the minds of many regarding the person of Jesus Christ. For the last 200 years, there have been mockers and scoffers who have questioned the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Because the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential to the gospel. Without the doctrine of the virgin birth, without the fact of the virgin birth, we have no forgiveness, no salvation, no hope for eternity. 
Why, you may ask? Well, because without the truth of the virgin birth, Jesus Christ becomes just another ordinary human being. The book of Romans chapter 5 tells us that God held Adam responsible for Adam and Eve's rebellion against him in the Garden of Eden. So the curse of sin passes down to every human being through their human father. So if Jesus Christ had a human father, then he would be a sinner. And he could not die for our sin. He would be dying for his own sin. Yet our Savior also had to be human in order to die for the sins of other humans. So God's incredible, miraculous, absolutely necessary solution was the virgin birth. A human mother and a divine father. The Savior would be the God-man. 100% God and 100% human. God the Son accepted all the limitations of a human body, yet without sin. And then He lived a perfect, sinless life so that He could die a bloody death as our substitute. He took our place. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus did, according to Hebrews chapter 7, uh, Jesus said, or he says that Jesus is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, and does not need to offer sacrifices for sin like the Old Testament priests who offered sacrifices for their own sin and then for the sins of others. Hebrews 7 says Jesus did this once for all when he offered up himself. He could only do that if he were the virgin-born Son of God, fully divine, fully human, the unique, one-of-a-kind Savior, the only one who could qualify to do what he did, the only one who is eternally worthy to be our Savior. So during this Christmas season, a very interesting way, we are, we are not celebrating the birth of our Savior as much as we're celebrating his conception. When the Virgin Mary gave birth to the Lord Jesus, the actual birth was quite ordinary. Not that different from the billions of human births down through the centuries. Mary went into labor, her water broke, not necessarily in that order, but then she delivered a son. Yes, there were, there, there were choirs of angels and all the fascinating events in the night sky. But, but, but the, the actual birth itself was not particularly unusual. But the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ was unlike anything that had ever happened before or since, and it made Jesus of Nazareth unique in the history of the world. Now I would like to read to you that portion of the Christmas story this Christmas Eve Sunday from Luke chapter 1, and I want to focus with you for just a few moments on one particular phrase that the angel spoke to Mary. So if you will follow along as I begin to read in verse 26, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. We're going to read to verse 38. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice! Highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. 
But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? She's never had a sexual relationship with a man. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her her who, who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You may have noted as we read the passage that the angel restated the Old Testament promise that the Messiah, the Son of the Highest, a name for God, uh, will have the throne as the king over Israel and, and his kingdom will be eternal. And we continue to believe, I've preached to you for many years, that we continue to believe in the literal earthly 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ over the whole world from the city of Jerusalem as the Bible prophesies as well as the kingdom of Jesus Christ extending into eternity as this passage clearly states. You may have also noted that the angel did not give Mary a scientific explanation as to how the virgin birth was going to take place. However, the angel did say that it would be what we often call in our day a God thing. The Holy Spirit would come upon her. The power of God would overshadow her. This would totally be a creative act by God himself. This was not some sort of divine human sexual relationship that we see in various mythologies around the world. This was a creative act by the power of God as God the Son voluntarily left the glory of heaven and submitted himself to the limitations of a human body. He did not cease to be God. He simply assumed the limitations of a human body so he could be one of us and eventually die for us. But note the angelic reminder, and this is our focus this morning. How can these things be, asked Mary, since I do not know a man? As I said, it's a Hebrew expression for a sexual relationship, the most intimate and deeply personal of all human experiences. Now, Mary is not rejecting the word of the angel Gabriel. She's just curious as to how this can happen. The angel gives her the, the quote-unquote God thing explanation. He says the, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to be upon you. The, 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 the power of God is going to overshadow you. And, and that baby that's going to be born, that Holy One who will be born, will be called the Son of God. And then he reminds her of this very powerful truth I want to think about with you. With God, nothing will be impossible. I won't have you turn to all of these passages. You can look them up and read them anytime if you want to. But 2,000 years before Jesus was born, three angels visited Abraham and Sarah. 
The story is in Genesis 18, if you'd like to read it sometime. One of those three angels, the Bible calls the angel of the Lord. It's Yahweh himself, God the Son. We often call this a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, an appearance of God the Son in the Old Testament, before his incarnation, before his birth. So God the Son says to Abraham when he, when he visits him, your wife is going to have a baby about this time next year. Abraham is 100 years old, his wife is 90, Sarah, his wife, is listening to all of this behind the door of the tent, and she laughs to herself, like, really? I'm 90 years old. And the Lord says, why did Sarah laugh? Sarah denies it, oh, I didn't laugh, oh, no, no, I, I didn't laugh, Lord, it's, oh, yes, you did laugh. But he said, I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and you will have a son. And then the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, in the Old Testament says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? And of course, you know the story. Sarah became pregnant and gave birth to Isaac. The famous Old Testament person, Job, who we are quite convinced lived during the same era as Abraham, he suffered many horrendous things at the hand of Satan. Most all of you know the story of Job's life. When God comes to speak to Job about all of his trials, he comes in a whirlwind. We would think of it as a tornado. God has a, a one-sided conversation with Job, meaning that God did all the talking. And that conversation covers four chapters in our English Bibles, Job 38 up to Job 41. And God basically asks Job a series of questions for four chapters. Things like, where were you, Job, when I created the earth? Where were you, Job, when I told the oceans where to stop? Where were you, Job, when I put the stars in the sky, etc., etc.? And God goes on for four chapters reminding Job of his infinite power and wisdom and authority and reminding Job that Job is just a human, a speck of dust on the earth, a frail, weak, fragile human being. And after four chapters of God, of God rehearsing to Job all of his power and wisdom and authority and, and all of the things God can do that Job can't do, Job's response to all of that in chapter 42, he says, Lord... I know you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Therefore, I repent in dust and ashes. God can do whatever he wants to do. Several hundred years later, as the Psalms were being written, an unnamed psalmist penned these words in Psalm 115. He said, Not unto us, Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth, our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Many centuries later, when the nation of Israel had forsaken the Lord and God was bringing judgment upon them, he sent the Babylonians down to besiege the city of Jerusalem and ultimately destroy the city, killing thousands and carrying thousands more back to Babylon in what Bible students call the Babylonian captivity. Many of you are, are well aware of that part of Old Testament history. Jeremiah was a prophet during that time. King Zedekiah of Judah had arrested Jeremiah because Jeremiah had been preaching against him and had been denouncing his sins as a king. And while Jeremiah at this time was under house arrest in a corner of the palace courtyard, 
God sent one of Jeremiah's cousins to him, asking him to buy a piece of property. Jeremiah was very curious about this and asked God about it. Nebuchadnezzar had already surrounded the city. And Jeremiah knew from what God had told him that the city was going to fall and be burned and many would be marched off to Babylon as prisoners, as Jeremiah was eventually. So he's kind of asking, God, I mean, does this really make sense? My cousin comes to me and he wants me to buy this piece of property. Nebuchadnezzar's already surrounded the city. We're under siege. People are already dying. Uh, and I know from what you said uh, that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to overrun the city and burn everything to the ground and carry us all away. And you want me to buy a piece of property? God said, buy it. I want Israel to know, God says, I want Israel to know that they will be back in the land one day and property will be sold and bought and vineyards will be planted and fields will be plowed. And he said, I'm using you as an illustration of that. So buy that piece of property from your cousin. Get your witnesses and seal the deed. I know right now it doesn't seem to make sense, but one day it will, so buy it. You can read that story in Jeremiah 32. And Jeremiah's response to this, he says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your power and your outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. And God responds to Jeremiah a few verses later by saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? So 600 years later, in the story that we just read, the angel Gabriel appears to a godly teenaged young woman named Mary. And he says to her, even though you have never had a sexual relationship with a man, you are going to become pregnant by a supernatural creative act of God and your child will be called the Son of God. Oh, and by the way, your cousin Elizabeth, who was well beyond her childbearing years and was never able to conceive, and everybody called her barren, guess what? She's currently in, also in her sixth month of pregnancy. So a woman that everyone thought could never conceive and have a baby, and a virgin who everyone thought should never be able to conceive without a man, are now all of a sudden going to both be pregnant. One carrying a son who would become John the Baptist, the other carrying a son who would be called the Son of God. Because nothing is impossible with God. Is anything too hard for the Lord. God himself said it to Abraham. God himself said it to the psalmist. God himself spoke to Job that same way. God himself said it to Jeremiah. And now the angel comes to Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Do you have a marriage that's on the rocks? Do you have a child who has rejected the Lord? Do you have a financial mountain that you cannot seem to climb? Do you have an addiction that you can't seem to break? Do you have a situation far beyond your ability to deal with? Are there fears and uncertainties in your future that you aren't sure and you just aren't sure the direction to go? This Christmas season, remember, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Trust Him.
Let's pray. Lord, this Christmas season, as we think of all you are and all that you've done, may we remember miracles are certainly not too hard for you. You created the world. You put all of the laws of our natural world into into play. You created them. You made the world to run the way it runs. And if you want to do something different in the in in some miraculous way that violates those those general principles of scientific law, you can do that in the snap of a finger. You healed diseases, you healed the sick, you opened blind eyes, you raised the dead. And as you said repeatedly for the last 4,000 years to your people, is anything too hard for me? I am the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And as the angel reminded Mary that day, nothing will be impossible with God. May we, Lord, take hope and joy and, 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 and encouragement in that as we face all of the things that will be before us in the months ahead. Bless us this Christmas season as we rejoice not simply in your birth, but in the miraculous conception that enabled you to be our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Logan, if you'll come with your reading now, please. The theme of the Christmas story is 